Good morning, my name's Kyle, and I'm a pastor here, and I've been called to preach the gospel, so woe to me if I don't preach the gospel, and that's what I want to do right now, and I'm going to do it from the book of First John. We're finishing up our series on First John. If you have a Bible, take it out and turn to First John chapter 4. Uh, if you don't know where First John is, there's a table of contents in the front of your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles on the round tables. It looks like they're almost all gone, though, which is great. But there are a few of them, so get up and go back there and grab one, and it's totally okay. Um, you know, so I've forgotten my notes before and had to go back to my office at this point in the service. So, like, we all have to get up sometimes. It's all right. So, um, but as, uh, as, uh, as you do that, I'm going to pray so no one's going to see you, okay? All right, let me pray for us. God, we do thank you for your word, uh, your life-giving word, and we thank you for your love. Help us to understand what that means and what it means particularly for us and our lives. We need your love. We need to know your love. We're all on a quest to know your love. Lord, may seekers be found this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, artist Allison Laper uh, was born without arms and with shortened legs. It's a condition that's known as photocamellia. And when she was young, uh, an infant, she was institutionalized, abandoned by her relatives. She still has, uh, as you can imagine, a... Um, distant relationship with them. At one point, she was asked to reflect on the question, what does it mean to be human? As she reflected on that question, she actually reflected on a scene from the movie Elephant Man. Some of you may be familiar with this movie because the brilliant Anthony Hopkins, who's like the best actor ever, it doesn't matter what anybody says, um, is in it. And uh, and, you know, the, it's about a man who's deformed, uh, the elephant man. At the very beginning, it's got this famous scene where he's running around a train station. He gets um, locked in by a crowd of people in a bathroom stall, and he says, I'm not an animal, I'm not an animal, I'm a human. Right? And then at the end of that uh, movie, the elephant man, uh, John Merrick, or Joseph Merrick, he turns to Frederick Trevs, Dr. Frederick Trevs, and he says... My life is full because I am loved. And for Alison Laper, that's the meaning of life, to be loved. It's what makes us human. Love and the need for love are basic to human existence. Victor Hugo once wrote, the greatest happiness in life is the conviction that we are loved. And so we seek out love in all of our pursuits. It drives and dictates the things that we say and the things that we don't say, the things that we do and the things that we don't do, the choices that we make, how much we reveal about ourselves or not. They're all calculated based on this question, will I be loved? There's a famous... Um, well, not that famous, really, but a very striking moment in Madonna's career where she was playing in L.A. and uh, 
and she forgot her words and she was missing her keys. And all of a sudden she just stopped the show. And she uh, went down to the front and she just sat down and she just said, um, I'm feeling off tonight. Do you guys love me? Of course, at that point they went crazy. And she got back up and kept singing. That's a very vulnerable question. Do you guys love me? Because it drives Madonna's singing like it drives our careers and our relationships and everything else. And before there was Madonna, before there was the elephant man, there was Augustine, who in his confessions wrote, the single desire that dominated my search for delight was simply to love and to be loved. It drove St. Augustine. And the Beatles, they tell us that love is all you need. But what is love? If love is all you need, what is love? It's a question that's asked by theologians and philosophers, by ethicists. Um, it's also a theologian, I mean, it's also a question that's asked by romantic poets and teenagers and betrayed spouses and abandoned children. It's asked by the dreamy-eyed and the cynical, what is love? And we use the word so loosely, we wonder what does it mean. I love Rory's ice cream. I love Les Mis. Is that the only love you need? That kind of love? If love is all you need, then what is love? Well, John, he thinks love is pretty important too. And in fact, in the passage that was just read, we find the highest concentration of the word love in the entire Bible. In those few verses, John uses the word love or derivative of love no less than 28 times. 28 times. Compare that to the Gospels where John's Gospel is the highest uh, use of the word love and it's 30 times in the entire Gospel. We have it 28 times in those eight verses or so. So if we want to know what love is, John's going to tell us what love is, and he doesn't leave us to wonder. He's not ambiguous about it. So let's look at what the love that John thinks is all we need. And we want to look at uh, what I'm going to, how we're going to handle this this morning. We're going to look at the uh, ultimate source of love, the source of love that John is talking about. We're going to talk about um, where does it come from. We're going to talk about the manifestation of love. Uh, what does it look like? And then, um, and then we're going to look at its outworking. What does it result in? So first, where does this love come from? What is love's ultimate source? And John understands that the ultimate source of love is God. Look verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. It derives from God. God is its source. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. The, um, I grew up by the great Mississippi River. Saw it all the time. And, uh, and it was huge. It was huge. And I was always struck. I, I, I'm going to, this is, you know, I'm a preaching confessional kind of person, so I'm just going to confess something to you. Um, when I was in high school, I really liked the Indigo Girls. 
hopefully you can give me some absolution about that later. Uh, but they have this line in the song, it says, and, and the Mississippi's mighty, and it starts in Minnesota, from a place that you can walk across with five steps down. And that always struck me, that this huge river started at this source, and you could walk across it. And I always wanted, hearing that line, I always wanted to go to the source of the Mississippi River. Well, you think about this concept of love and how vast and wide and deep and important and meaningful is it. And where do you find its source? Its source is in the heart of God. Why? Well, John believes that because he believes that God is love. In fact, that's what he says two times in these verses. He says it in 1 John 4, 8. Look in verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And then he says it again in verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. It, John believes that, that the essence of God is love. And that really requires two things. First, it requires that God is personal. I was um, speaking one time with someone who had been attending our church and uh, this person was from a, a Hindu background. They had been influenced by Hindu thought. And they were in this church because um, they were in love with a person who uh, came from a Christian tradition. The person wasn't a Christian at the time, but she wanted to understand this person. And so uh, I was speaking with her about, well, you know, uh, the Christian faith. And the thing that struck her most about our worship services was that we use personal pronouns to refer to God. I just don't understand. You, you say him, and, and you use these personal pronouns, and that was just so striking to her because she couldn't understand a, a personal God. But if you don't have a personal God, then you don't have a God who loves. This is why many philosophies on life, they don't have a God who loves or understanding of a God who loves. Many forms of Hinduism and Buddhism can't claim that God is love. The universe can't love you back. The universe can't love you, period. To say that God is love requires that God is personal, and that is the Christian claim, but it requires more than God is personal. It actually requires that God is multipersonal. See, because if God is love, then who did God love before he created? That's the question. And if God needed to create to love, then God loves out of a place of need. Then love can't actually be intrinsic to God. You could say, the most you could say is that God loves, but you can't say that God is love, which is what John claimed, that love is part of the very essence of God. Now, how can you say that? A lot of people say God is love. But actually, I would suggest to you that only Christianity can make sense of that statement. Because Christianity, at the fundamental confession of Christianity, is that God has revealed himself as a trinity. Three in one. And that the persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, have existed in mutual, reciprocal love. Eternally. And so that God doesn't need to create to love. That God is love. It's more than God loves 
as an act or attribute. It's that God is, that the very essence of God is love. And only Christianity can claim that because you need a personal God and a multi-personal God to be able to claim that. And this has some implications. The first implication is, is this, that God actually doesn't love you from a place of need. I mentioned this earlier. We all love out of a place of need. We are needy. But God doesn't need to create in order to love. God loves you from a place of perfect self-sufficiency. God is love. God knows love. And he doesn't create you in order to love or in order to be complete in himself or anything like that. Which is actually good news because it means that God's love for you isn't contingent. It means that he doesn't love you if and when you love him back. It means that he loves you because he loves you because he loves you and he doesn't need you to love you because he is full up on love. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existing in mutual love forever and ever and ever. God doesn't love you from a place of need. That's the first implication. But the second implication from this, that God is love, is it means that your love is always derivative. Because God is love and God is the source of love, we don't actually have love in ourselves. So our love, our loving of others, is always actually a derivative love. It's a love that flows in us and through us into others. Look at verse 7. Love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. That means it it requires actually knowing God to love others rightly. It requires experiencing his love to pass it along. There are different approaches to God. And most approaches, most philosophies of life and religious approaches basically say... God loves you if you love him. And if you love God, he'll love you back. But that's not what the gospel says. That's not what verse 19 says. Verse 19 says that we love, why? Because he first loved us. That everything flows from the fountainhead of the Trinity. And I think this has implications for how we think about spiritual health and the questions that we ask. You know, when, um, when churches are looking for a pastor, they often want to know, does this, does this person, and the, the thing that you'll hear them say if they are very interested in this person is, uh, they love God. They love Jesus. Or if when people are looking for spouses, they're looking for someone, if they're a Christian, who, who loves God, who loves Jesus. And most of the time, we think, or I think the way that it's it, naturally we assume, that's the most important characteristic of someone. That they love God or love Jesus. Or... But if our love is derivative, then I don't think that's the most important question to ask. The most important question, far more important than does this person love God, is does this person know that God loves them? And do they receive it and rest in and rely upon God's love? Do they know that they are loved? 
See, some of you are single and you're looking for a spouse. Far more important than does this person love God, the more foundational question is do they realize how much God loves them? And do they receive and rest in and rely upon and live in that love? I have a friend who was a minister down in L.A. He's moved now, but he's preached here several times. His name's Joe White. And Joe was driving in the car with his younger son, Taylor, once. And he's riding with Taylor, and he says, Taylor, do you know something that's always going to be true about you? Taylor says, what, Daddy? He says, something that's always going to be true about you is that I love you. And then Taylor takes a few minutes and responds, Daddy, do you know something that's always going to be true about me? And he said, that you love me? And he said, no, that I know that you love me. And that's it. God is love. And we love because he first loves us. God, the Trinity, is the ultimate source of love. But what does that look like? Well, that leads us to our second point. The ultimate manifestation of love. Look in verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. So we see it. How do we see it? How do we get to know this love that's in the Trinity, that exists in the Trinity? How is it made known to us that God sent his only son into the world? See, the ultimate manifestation of love is the Christ gift. And let me be very clear because there is a lot of confusion about this. Jesus did not come into the world so that God could love you. That is a distorted understanding of God. Jesus came into the world because God loves you. God sent his son into this world out of love, not in order to love. This is the manifestation of God's love. And when John says that he sent his son into the world, he assumes a couple things about the world. He assumes that the world is a place of death. And we have passed from death to life, John writes elsewhere in 1 John. He assumes that the world is a place of darkness and the light shines in the darkness. In other words, when he says that he sent his only son into the world, he is saying that he sent his son into our plight. That Jesus fully identified and entered into the completeness of our plight, our situation. Jesus fully entered into our contingency. Jesus fully entered into our vulnerability. Jesus fully entered into our suffering and sickness. He was sick. Jesus fully entered into our loneliness and rejection. He was rejected from his family. Jesus fully entered into every experience of our plight on this earth, including our guilt and our shame and even our death. Look, verse 10 goes on. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation. 
for our sins. That's a very important word in that sentence, and it's a word that's probably the most foreign and least understood. It's the word propitiation. We don't use that word a lot, um, except, you know, at my house at breakfast in the morning. Not really. What does it mean to be a propitiation? Well, propitiation is a sacrifice that makes restitution. In other words, the biblical understanding is that, that God is love, and God is also holy, and just, and good, and he created a world that operates according to a certain moral logic. There's a moral order to the universe, and that sin, misdeeds, misdoing, wrongs have to be righted, and in order for wrongs to be righted, there needs to be a restitution. In other words, Romans puts it like this, the wages of sin is death. Romans 1, that's Romans 6. Romans 1 puts it like this. Because of the ungodliness of humanity, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all forms of ungodliness. See, God, because he actually loves the world, because he loves the world, the good world that he has made, and because he is just and he created a world that is good and has a just moral order, sin must be punished And so a propitiation is a sacrifice that makes restitution. A propitiation is, well, it's like a Gore-Tex jacket. We've had a lot of rain lately, and uh, I'm so thankful for it. And the rain in Santa Barbara is is always good, in my opinion. Um, But uh, the rain has not always been good in my life. Uh, One time I was in Boston, it was like around 2007 or, or so, and uh, maybe 2008, and I'm in Boston, and it is mid-November. Okay, mid-November in Boston, you are not having fires. It is cold, like real cold, really, really, really cold. And that day, it was really, really cold, almost freezing, almost freezing. I wish it was freezing, because if it was freezing, then it would have snowed. But instead, it's 32 degrees or 33, and I'm walking in downtown Boston, and I get caught in the freezing rain, and it just comes down, a downpour. And so I'm supposed to get on a flight that night. I've got all my stuff kind of packed up and in a locker. I'm walking. I'm sitting there with like a a wool blazer, the only coat that I have, right? And I'm just getting drenched. So, you know, a wool blazer... It doesn't really shield or protect you from the rain. It just absorbs it. So that blazer is gone. Um, it didn't quite fit right after that. And the rest of, like, I, I, I sat there the rest of the plane flight kind of with teeth chattering and trying to uh, figure out a way to, like, warm my socks and get them dry. I was so cold, right? I mean, and I, I just I kept thinking to myself, I wish I had my Gore-Tex. Because I lived in England at the time, and in England I had this great Gore-Tex jacket and this really nice Gore-Tex pants because I rode my bike to school every day to the library in the rain. And so if I had that, I would have been protected. I would have been shielded from the rain. Well, Jesus, Jesus is, Jesus is like a Gore-Tex jacket. You see, The wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. But Jesus, he covers you. He shields you. He protects you. So that when God's cleansing judgment comes down upon the earth, you are not consumed with it. 
but your sin is. That's, that's what a propitiation is all about. And a propitiation, I realize, is very unpalatable today. You say, well, why can't God just forgive me? I believe that God is love, and because I believe in God is love, I just believe he can forgive. And we don't need to get back to these primitive notions that, that sin requires payment and things like that. And so propitiation is a very difficult concept for moderns to understand. But I think that it's more necessary than ever in our modern world. I was reading an essay recently by a public intellectual and professor at the University of Oklahoma named Wilfred McClay. And the essay is called The Strange Persistence of Guilt. And in this essay, um, McClay talks about how different we use the word and our conception, our conception of forgiveness is nowadays compared to in previous days. And he says, nowadays forgiveness is all about the forgiver and his or her power and well-being. In other words, we're told to forgive because we will feel better and we will be psychologically more healthy, right? It's all about those who forgive. It's not really about those who are forgiven. Why is that, he says? Well, he goes on, we still claim to think well of forgiveness, but it has in fact very nearly lost its moral weight by having been translated into an act of random kindness whose cheap value lies in the sense of personal release that it gives. Don't you feel better that you've forgiven this person? Forgiveness, though, he says, only makes sense in the presence of a robust conception of justice. Without that, it is in real danger of being reduced to something passive and automatic and flimsy, a sanctimonious way of saying that nothing really matters very much at all. In other words, once we've gotten rid of this idea that sin has a weight of consequence, that wrongdoing has a weight of consequence that actually requires payment or restitution or some kind of moral transfer or calculation. Once we've gotten away with that, basically what we're saying, when you forgive someone, you're basically saying, this is for me personally, and by the way, what you did, it's really not that big a deal after all. Because it doesn't require payment for rights to be wronged. But he says, to forgive, quote, to forgive, whether one forgives trespasses or debts, means abandoning the just claims that we have against others in the name of the higher ground of love. Forgiveness affirms justice even as an act of suspending it. It is rare because it is so costly. It is a very conscious suspension of the entirely rightful demands of justice. In other words... He's saying forgiveness in its true and proper meaning only works if you have a, a just moral universe that requires payment and, for wrongdoing. And the reason why forgiveness is so costly is precisely because if they don't pay for it, you absorb the debt. And that hurts. That cost. You say, well, big deal. That's good. We're all the better for it because we don't live in that universe anymore and we don't have that moral view of the universe. But there's just one problem, and it's the problem of guilt. 
Hence the title of his essay, The Strange Persistence of Guilt. There's a 2008 New York Times opt-ed column by Daniel Mendelssohn where Daniel Mendelssohn, he is fascinated by this new phenomenon of phony memoirs. It's people that are writing memoirs and they aren't true and they usually actually have to do with victims of incredible suffering. So you have phony memoirs that are coming out all the time about the Holocaust. Holocaust survivors that never really existed. You also have phony memoirs about people who grew up in the slums of L.A. Written by privileged uh, folks who have never been anywhere near the slums of L.A. And he thought, well, why is this? And when some of these people were actually found out, they went and asked them, and, and, and they responded, the authors of these memoirs, they said, well, it is my story. I identify with it. What's going on there? What's going on there is that belief that if you are guilty, the only way to unload yourself of the moral burden of that guilt is to pay, is to suffer, even if it's vicariously through another person and by identifying with the person that you're making up a story about. That they started to actually look at these people and they had like pathological issues where they had identified to a pathological level with these people that they were writing about. In other words, they realized that suffering, that, that, that they were trying to find some form of suffering, even if it was vicarious suffering, in order to discharge the moral burden. They wanted a substitute. They wanted a propitiation. But you know the problem with that? If we're trying to suffer enough for our guilt, how much will be enough? Let me ask it this way. When will Germany ever pay off its moral debt for the Holocaust? What would that require? How would we know when that's enough? How much do families of white aristocrats have to pay for the evils of the institution of slavery in the American South? And when would it be enough? I'm not making an argument for or against reparations right now, but really, if we're saying that reparations somehow absolves the guilt, my question is, when is it enough? When is it fully absolved? Could they ever pay that off? Could we ever pay our debts off? See, there's only one place where the debt can be paid in full. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. All the world's sin. See, 
You can try through saying, I deserve this, or self-harm. You could try through loving acts of service. You can try through identifying with victims or making yourself a victim. You can try through lots of ways, but I would suggest to you that the guilt will never, ever, 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 ever go away. Because we can't pay for it. Only he can. And so my question to you is this. Is Jesus your Gore-Tex jacket? And if he is not, what do you have to protect you from the wrath of God? See, real forgiveness is rare because it's costly, McClay says. If you don't believe in propitiation, if you don't believe God had to sacrifice to love you, then what did it cost your God to love? Was love costly at all? Because propitiation, it is costly. A lot of people have faced death, and they've faced it with courage. And they have faced it looking at it square in the face, and they weren't afraid to die, and they weren't afraid to face death. But Jesus, you know, in every aspect of his life, he showed that he wasn't afraid of anything. Except there was one thing he became afraid of. Death. That's odd. Why? Because his death wasn't a normal death. There was only one thing that he ever asked the Father to take away from him, that he ever asked not to do. Father, take this cup from me. The cup that he was referring to was the cup of the unmitigated wrath of God that we find in the prophets Jeremiah, Isaiah. And then he said, not your will, but mine be done. You see, Jesus, he trembled at the fact of this. His father's face, the face that he had looked upon, this father's smile, the smile that he had looked upon through all eternity, that that smile he was going to be cut off from. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was cut off that we might be brought in. Some of you, like me, you hear that God is love. Like God loves you, but it doesn't overwhelm you. And we wonder why. There's a writer, southern writer, named William Faulkner, who lived not too far from where I grew up. And in his novel, As I Lay Dying, he has a character named Addie Bundren. And Addie Bundren says this, To them that sin is just words, salvation is just words also. To them that sin is just words, to them that don't believe that there's a moral universe, a good moral universe that requires some sort of restitution, compensation for sin, for them where that is just words, 
Well, the love of God displayed at the cross of Christ is just going to be words also. But when you come to see that it was my sin that held him there, that it was my people-pleasing, that it was my lying, that it was my infidelity, when you see that it was, it was my violence and my anger, when you see that it was mine and all the ways in which I have murdered and thought and word and deed others, when you find out that it was mine that held him there on the cross, then it's not just words. Now then you are lost in wonder, love, and praise. Because you realize that God loved you so much that he paid the debt for you. That the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and here we can only speak of that which is at the greatest level of mystery in the heart of the universe. That the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit felt the division in itself so that you might be brought in. And why? Why did God send his son into the world? Verse 9. And this is love. God sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. He entered into the fullness of our plight that he might bring us into the fullness of his pleasure and wonder and delight, his community of love. Which brings us to the last question. What does God's love bring about? The ultimate outworking of God's love. And the first thing that it brings about is a loving person. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. As human beings, we can either love out of one of two places. We can love out of need or we can love out of abundance. And because we are needy, we most often love out of need. That is that we need love and we need to feel love and to be loved. And so we love others in order that they might reciprocate, that we might get love in return. And when we, when we love like that... What that means is that, uh, is that love is always this kind of calculation game, and we're always adding up. How much have I done for them, and how much am I getting in return? It's why marriages fall down. It's why, um, it's why family relationships between parents and children are strained. Because it's not really love, because it's not altruistic. We're actually loving selfishly. We're loving only for what we can get in return. Augustine put it like this, I love, speaking of his whole life being a seeking to, to love and be loved, he said, I love not yet, yet I love to love. I sought what I might love and love with loving. In other words, he said, I love not yet. I wasn't really loving. And I, the reason I wasn't really loving is because I was loving in order to get. I was loving out of a place of need. I was in or loving in order to be loved. And that's not really love. It means that I couldn't actually love to give. To give love. 
And so what happens for us, and I think most of us are like this, it's not that God is love, it's that love is God. And we do anything to serve love, to get love in return. But of course, that means that we're never really loving or never really experiencing love. So here's the question. How do you not love or how do you not love out of need but out of a place of abundance? Well, you have to find a source of love which is outside of yourself and outside of human relationships and uncontingent. Where do you find that? In God, who is uncontingent love. Verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. The way in which you love others and can love others with a pure love is only if you are rooted, anchored in the uncontingent love that God has for you in Jesus Christ. Otherwise, it's all driven by selfishness. Otherwise, we develop calculations and codependency, and we can't actually speak the truth and love to someone else because we're worried that they might not love us in return, which means we're not really loving. See, God's love works out in actually having a loving person, but it goes further than that. It actually creates a loving community. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God's love abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. Now, this seems like a non sequitur. No one has ever seen God. Why does he say no one has ever seen God there? Well, because God is a community of love, which we do not see. But actually, when God comes and he loves us, what he is doing is he is enveloping us in that community of love. And we are called to love others with his love, and we actually envelop them in that community as well. I mean, isn't that the way you came to understand the love of God? Wasn't it a parent or a teacher or a youth pastor or a friend or a coach who showed you the uncontingent love of God? That you started to realize that you were loved? And because of that, you loved God and understood God's love in return? when they showed you that you were, you were loved and they loved you for no earthly reason and you started to realize that actually God's love and God loves us for no earthly reason and therefore you're allowed to love others for no earthly reason. See, this is a community of, of love. There's that, uh, I thought it was actually a pretty bad movie but it makes for a good illustration in 2000, there was that movie, Pay It Forward, where the sociology teacher basically uh, asked the class to do something that would be for the human good of the world, and someone would do something good for someone, and then they would pass it along and pay it forward, right? And then by the end, it kind of, uh, it, people are reciprocating to the one who gave to them, but they reciprocate not as a direct line in return, which would close the circle, but actually to continue to expand the circle out. And then at the end, there's this like overly emotional scene, which is why I don't like the movie, but it serves a good point um, where uh, the child is, the, the, you know, the child is dying or, I don't know, it's 2000, my memory eludes me, maybe the mom is dying, something, someone dies and all the people show up and they show up and you have this community of love, Right? Because it's been passed along and passed along and passed along and they are all bound together. 
Like, I think that that's overly emotional because it sentimentalizes um, the, the nature of, of human relationships in that way. Uh, but you know, it doesn't. It doesn't if there's a God who loves with uncontingent love and envelops us in that. Then that's what heaven is like. And that's what heaven is all about. Us being wrapped up in the love of God who is love. Loving and being loved for no earthly reason because God is the source and foundation of all love. So, as we enter this holy week and as you reflect upon the costly love of God and the cross of Christ, may you know that God is love and that God loves you. Amen.